in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We uh, last week um, started speaking about the canons of the church, um, which are rules and guidelines that the church has laid out um, based on um, various councils, early church fathers, the writings of the apostles and the teachings of the apostles. Um, we spoke last time about many of the sources of the canons and some of the characteristics of the canons. Um, so God willing, today we're going to take some of the maybe well more well-known of the canons, the things that we um, already know, many of us, uh, and you know just talk about where it came from. Um, and so specifically, we're going to speak about um, speaking in the church, prostrations, reverence for the church, seven orders of the church, the kiss of peace, the prayer of the hours, um, and then some of the feasts and the fasts. So first, we'll, um, speaking in the church. So Pope Gabriel, who was the seventh, 70th patriarch, um, under him there was a uh, list of canons. Canon number 10, it says, The Holy Scripture forbids speaking during prayer, um, and that we should have pure hearts. Other people mock us and say they aren't praying. It is obligatory on us to be respectful during times of prayer. And if we fear not God, let us fear men's reproach. So um, outlining the rules for speaking in the church, maybe um, if you ask anyone, um, should you speak in the church, everyone will say no, shouldn't speak in the church. But did you know that this was a canon that says you cannot speak in the church? Um, canon number 17, it says, It has reached my lowliness that some priests deliberately abstain at the time of the liturgies from chants and prayers, and they pay attention to talking and conversation. There is no such thing as anyone being above the canon law, even clergy. It is required that they should abandon this evil, vile, and detestable custom, and they shall stand around the altar bareheaded and in awe. Whoever does this should not take communion. If a priest sees another talking, he should tell him that he shouldn't talk. So again, um, the seriousness of this idea. So this is another canon that's also speaking about um, speaking in the church, but this time specifically addressing um, the clergy. And, and, and as I said before, um, canons are reactive. So it's not that you know, they sat around and they said, what are some canons that we should create to prevent certain kind of problems? And they said, oh, you know, we got to make sure that priests don't speak in the liturgy or that people don't speak in the liturgy. No, it was based on what was what was being seen, what was happening. So when there was an issue at the time uh, of, of people speaking during the liturgy, and so they came up with these canons. Canon 37 of St. Athanasius, as long as it is during the time of the chalice, no one can speak at all. So again, like during time of communion especially, um, we should be silent and chanting only the hymns. Canon 96 of St. Basil says the priest should not speak while in the sanctuary except for what is needed. Because Aaron was wearing bells in the sanctuary, this was to notify the angels in order for him not to die. We as Christians have psalms instead of bells. So whenever we enter the altar, we should be in prayer. We should notify all those who enter for cleaning. Even the deacons who do this work should respect the holy altar. So even actually not even during the time of the liturgy so here when it's speaking about uh, uh, during time of cleaning whenever the deacon would enter the sanctuary to clean even during that time there should be respect and reverence for the holy altar because of course we use it um, to you know for for the communion for the eucharist so um, so again there is this sense of reverence that's being communicated here um, prostrations, canons regarding prostrations. So there should be no prostrations 
on Sunday, the Feast of the Resurrection and the Holy 50 Days. So to, to clarify what, what the prostration, the prostration means that you bow down to the ground with your knees touching the ground and then you put your head to the ground. That's a prostration, kneeling. Um, genuflection is another word for it. Um, and the, 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 the rules of the church allow prostrations for different purposes. So for instance, you might see that when the, um, a deacon dresses in his vestment, um, he comes in front of the church, in front of the altar, and prostrates. Or someone who comes to the church for the, f for the first time will come and prostrate before the altar. Okay? Those are prostrations specifically for like worship and reverence to God. Okay? This is not the prostrations that's being, meant, that's being talked about here. There's a different prostration, which is for repentance, like during times of mourning over sins. Okay? Th and, and those kinds of prostrations, for instance, is what we do during Holy Week. Um, whenever we are um, prostrating many, many times during the litanies that are at the end of, uh, of each of the hours of Good Friday, for instance, this is um, prostrations for repentance. Or if a person is prostrating in their home, like uh, they're praying and they're prostrating their home, this is prostration for repentance. So there are certain rules regarding this type of prostration um, because it is seen that this type of prostration is a sign of, of mourning over sin. So there is, a, there is times in the church where we focus on our sins, and there's other times in the church where we focus on um, like the mercy of God and the glory of God and the resurrection. So on feast days, and specifically on the resurrection, and during the Holy 50 days, the church prohibits doing prostrations, right? Um, because the focus then is not on our sins, but the focus is on God's mercy and how he has redeemed us and his salvific work on the cross, uh, and so on. So, so the, the focus on during this time is not on um, repentance as much as it is on um, God's redeeming work. So Tertullian, who was one of the scholars of the church, he said, we count fasting or kneeling in worship on the Lord's day to be unlawful. We rejoice in the same privilege also from Easter to Pentecost. So you might ask yourself um, if, if fasting on the Lord's day is unlawful. Well, today is the Lord's day. And today was the first day of the nativity fast. So how can we understand this if fasting is unlawful on, on the Lord's Day? First of all, why is the Lord's Day considered like a feast day? Because of the resurrection. So both Saturdays and Sundays are considered to be joyful days, always. Okay. Now I use the word joyful with an asterisk, Okay, because the word joyful can mean many things. But... They are, they are considered joyful days because Sunday is the day of the resurrection and Saturday is the day, we call it Joyful Saturday or Bright Saturday, which is the Saturday before the resurrection. It's joyful because the work of salvation had been completed on the cross. Christ entered into Hades to bring up those who were um, in, in Hades to up to paradise. So it's considered also a joyful day. So, um, so Saturday and Sunday are joyful days, uh, which means that and, and here, when you, when you read the word fasting, you have to understand the context of what does it mean by fasting. We use the word fasting to mean different things, okay? Sometimes we use the word fasting typically to mean during the period of time where we are not eating meat, right? We call that the fasting period, okay? But the actual definition of fasting is abstinence. When you are fasting, like for instance, to the people who do intermittent fasting, right? Intermittent fasting is no food at all, okay? So, uh, the, the fasting that we do in the church, there's a period of abstinence in the morning, which the length of which varies based on each person's kind of agreement with their father of confession. 
Uh, and then afterward, there is the vegetarian food or the vegan food um, that we eat. So, so the when it says here, we count fasting or kneeling in worship on the Lord's day to be unlawful. Okay, it is speaking about the abstinence. So this is why we do not abstain. So when we, even though we might be fasting in terms of like the type of food that we eat on Sundays, but we do not abstain from food on Sundays or Saturdays. So um, while during the weekdays, maybe people will abstain until, let's say, noon or, or maybe past that in the morning before they eat anything. On Saturdays, there's no abstinence at all. OK, so this is what he is referring to. And, and definitely from Easter to Pentecost, which is the Holy 50 days, there is no fasting at all. And there's there's no any type of fasting. OK. Canon 15 of Pope Peter of Alexandria, he says, but the Lord's day we celebrate as a day of joy because on it he rose again, on which day we have received it for a custom, not even to bow the knee. And again, bowing the knee here is speaking about the prostrations for repentance. OK, so we don't we don't do it. Um, uh, Canon 20, the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea, says, For as much as there are certain persons who kneel on the Lord's Day and in the days of Pentecost, the days of Pentecost is the Holy 50 days, therefore, to the intent that all things may be unifer uniformly observed everywhere in every parish, it seems good to the Holy Synod that prayers be made, uh, be made to God standing. Right? So again, there's no prostration for repentance um, on the Lord's Day, which is the Sunday, and on the Holy 50 Days. Yes. So it's because the, the way the church ordains the different periods of the year, right? There's different seasons of the year. There's certain seasons that are focused on the fasting and focused on repentance um, like which is the, the great fast, for instance. But then there are other seasons where we focus more on God's mercy and the joy that we have in the resurrection. So the church doesn't want us to be focused only on one. It wants us to have like a balanced view to see, uh, yes, there is times of a f for mourning over sin and there's also times for rejoicing. Actually, we were just reading in the book of Nehemiah uh, about how there was a, a period of time like after the building of the wall of Jerusalem and the, 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 the people read the, the Torah uh, out loud. Ezra, the scribe, read the Torah out loud. And the people were mourning over their sins. And, uh, but actually, Ezra told them, do not mourn, but be, be joyful. This is a joyful time. And he told them, do not weep. So the, that was a specific time ordained for, for being joyful, not for a time of, of repenting. Because if you do something co consistently without any break, um, all the time, then it's something that's not sustainable. Meaning if we try to spend our entire life doing nothing but mourning over sins without focusing at all on like God's mercy and the joy of the resurrection, then maybe we become depressed, right? But on the flip side, if you only focus only on the joyful things and the resurrection, then maybe we'll forget repentance. So that's why we have seasons of the church. That's even why we have periods of fasting and the periods of feast, um, all to help us to keep that both things in mind. So the mourning and the repentance is there during the great fast and then culminates in the Holy Week, which then leads us to the Holy 50 days, which is a time of rejoicing and not focusing on repentance. That doesn't mean that we don't repent. It doesn't mean that we don't confess. But but the church rites are joyful rites, whereas during the, the great fast, everything in the church is a mournful tune, um, whereas in the Holy 50 days, everything is a joyful tune. Okay. St. Basil in his work on the Holy Spirit, he says, we pray standing on the first day of the week. So the first day of the week is Sunday. Uh, but we do not 
all know the reason. On the day of the resurrection, we remind ourselves of the grace given to us by standing at prayer, not only because we rose with Christ and are bound to seek those things which are above, but because the day seems to us to be in some sense an image of the age which we expect, like Sunday is a representation of eternity. So we are, we are standing, like looking up to heaven, um, not looking down to the earth. Canon 15 of Pope Peter of Alexandria says, Wednesday is a fasting day because it's the days the Jews conspired against the Lord, and Friday because he suffered. Uh, then we preserve the day of the Lord as a day of happiness, because on the, the day the Lord rose. Our tradition is not to kneel on that day. So again, you see, so, so this mentions here Wednesdays and Fridays. There will be more about Wednesdays and Fridays later, but um, specifically why do we fast Wednesdays? Because it was the day that Christ was betrayed. Friday it was the day that Christ was crucified. Um, but the day of the Lord, Sunday, is a joyful day, okay? And so on that day, we do not prostrate, okay? Uh, reverence for the church. Canon 7 of St. Athanasius, he says, If you will learn the truth here, that I may teach you how you may honor the church with all reverence. For she is built in heaven in the form of that Moses planned when he built the tabernacle, according to the form which he had seen upon Mount Sinai, as it was said unto him, Give heed to the reverence which belongs unto the holy place wherein you do service. Again, so he's speaking about the kind of reverence that we should have when approaching the church. And he's saying the church is actually built in heaven, for she is built in heaven in the form that Moses planned. So the form that Moses planned means this is the, the form, the structure of the tabernacle that God gave to Moses in order for him to build the tabernacle. Right, and the church in the New Testament is built according to the pattern of the tabernacle, right? So just as the the tabernacle had three sections, it had the outer court, and then it had the holy, and then it had the holy of holies. So kind of going from the outside, like the least holy, to the most holy, um, progressively. Okay, and this is the same way that we have the church. So we have this area of the church where the people sit. You know what it's called? Pews, pews are the are the chairs, or the the benches are called pews. But do you know what this area of the church is called? Ah, sanctuary. It's not. Do you know why we call it sanctuary sometimes? Because in the Protestant church, they call it sanctuary. And do you know why they call it sanctuary? Because they do not consider the three sections of the church as was specified by Moses, uh, by God to Moses, right? Because they consider what? They consider that, so if, if you remember, when Christ was crucified, what happened to the veil in the, in the temple? It was torn, and it was torn what? From top to bottom, okay? Showing that what? The separation between God and man had been abolished, right? And, and that's actually when the, the temple worship should have been abolished. Of course, the Jews continued doing it because they didn't believe in Christ. But that's when the, the temple worship was abolished because there was no more separation between God and man because in the Old Testament, um, the only person who was ever even allowed to enter to the Most Holy was the high priest and only once a year for on the Day of Atonement for the forgiveness of the people. So there was this emphasis on the, the holiness of God separate from man that we are unable to enter to see God's glory, okay? So 
in the in the Protestant understanding, now in the New Testament, because this wall of separation has been canceled, right? And so now we have access to God. This Holy of Holies was the sanctuary. The Holy of Holies. The most holy was the sanctuary. Now, what they say, well, because there is no separation between God and man, so now the entire church is the sanctuary because we all enter into the sanctuary, right? So that's why in the Protestant church, they will call it the sanctuary. In the Orthodox church, we take like a middle view, okay? We say, yes, there is no wall of separation. Yes, we have access to the Father. Yes, we have salvation, all of that. But we still have kind of an emphasis on the altar being holy, and we have reverence for the church, and, and, that, and that the altar is a holy place, and that the people who enter into the altar should be the ones who are appointed to serve the altar, okay? So we call the altar still, the altar area, we call the altar area still sanctuary, but only this area is the sanctuary. We do not call the entire church the sanctuary. Now, some people will say it, because they're trying to because that's like terminology that people are used to saying but technically no this is not the sanctuary this is called the nave okay the nave the area where the people sit is called the nave and then you have the second area so the nave represents and the tabernacle what would the nave represent hmm? the outside the outside part of the tabernacle which is called what the what the outer court right so the outer court which is so the, the the tabernacle there's a fence okay inside the fence there's an outdoor area which is called the outer court then you have the tent and in the tent there's two sections there's the holy and the holy of holies okay so the outer court is considered to be the, like the nave now then you have the second area of the church which is where the deacons stand which is called where the, the deacons stand and what's it called there's deacons here, right? Deacon? What, uh, what is it called? It's called the chorus. The chorus. Okay? Because it's like the choir of deacons are the ones that are standing there. So that's the second area, and that corresponds to the holy. And then you have, again, the third area, which is represents the holy of holies, which is the sanctuary. So that's why here he is saying, when St. Athanasius is saying, um, how you may honor the church with all reverence, for she is built in heaven in the form that Moses planned. So e the church is still built in the same form with the same separations, with the same sections that Moses planned. Of course, again, we're not seeing, like, like we're not seeing this curtain that separates here between the, the chorus and the rest of the church and the sanctuary. That is not the same as the curtain in the Old Testament. Because the curtain in the Old Testament was like representing a separation between us and God. We don't have that separation, right? Um, so, so, but, but the, the structure of the church is built similar to the tabernacle. It was always closed. Uh, on the Day of Atonement, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think it would be open. I don't think so. Um, Hear how God commanded Moses, ordain for your brother Aaron that he come not at all times within the veil before the altar, lest he die. For in a cloud upon the altar will I show you myself, and I will speak with you. So this is where God is telling Moses that even the high priest, who was Aaron at the time, could not enter 
into the Holy of Holies at any time. Now, of course, for us, that's not the case. We enter into the sanctuary. But we don't keep, but the sanctuary is not the same as where everybody can enter the sanctuary, right? We say, no, the priest and the deacons who are appointed to serve can enter the sanctuary, but it's not open to everyone to enter. But the reason it's not open for everyone to enter is not for some theological reason that, that there is a separation between us and God. It's just a sign of reverence for this place. For because the Lord stands upon the altar, so are they. So he's speaking now about the altar vessels, the vessels that are used for the liturgy on the altar. For because the Lord stands upon the altar, so are they spiritual and neither silver nor gold nor stone nor wood, even as the bread and wine. Before they are raised upon the altar are bread and wine, yet after they are raised upon the altar are no more bread and wine, but the life-giving body of God and blood, so that they communicate therein, so, so that they who communicate therein die not, but live eternally. So he's saying, if the, the, what is it that the altar is doing? It is on the altar that you're taking something which is normal, which is bread and wine, and that after the prayers are done, and being put on the altar, they are no longer bread and wine, but they are now the body and blood of God. Okay? So he's saying the altar is not like a regular table. So just as the bread and wine are converted to the body and blood, they are made holy by the altar, so also anything that is on the altar is holy and consecrated. So you take the vessels, like what are the vessels? The vessel, you have a chalice, you have the plate, the paten, and some other things, right? And, and these being put on the altar have become holy. And these are consecrated by the bishop. So whenever you get a new set, a new altar set, um, the bishop will come and he will pray to consecrate the vessels and he will anoint them with the myrun oil. And then, then you can use them in the liturgy. Prior to the consecration, you cannot use them in the liturgy. So, so he's saying the, the, the reverence that we should give the altar right, is great because it is, is whatever touches the altar, whatever is used on the altar is consecrated for use um, uh, for, for God. And actually anything that is of the altar is consecrated. Even the vacuum cleaner, if you maybe you don't know this, that the vacuum cleaner that's used to clean the church is one, and the vacuum cleaner that's used to clean the altar is a different one. The one we use for the altar is only for the altar, nothing else. Everything is that's in the altar is not to be used in any any other thing right because it's consecrated for use there so but we don't give reverence to the vacuum cleaner though so also is the altar and be it of wood or stone or gold or silver it is no more mortal as its former substance but it lives forever and is spiritual for the living god stands upon it so again the, the table itself of the altar because it is consecrated for the use of the for the eucharist it's not a table that you would feel comfortable doing anything else with like you would not get your laptop and put it on the altar and use it as a work table, like you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't do that. Actually, um, the the sin that was committed by the king of Babylon in the book of Daniel was they had pillaged the um, altar vessels of the tabernacle when they conquered Judah. They took the altar vessels of the temple and and they were using them in a party to drink with, right? And it was on the same night that they did that, that they were conquered by the Persians, right? And they were removed from power, and the king was killed. So, so again, it, it emphasizes like the, 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 sacri the sacrilege of using the things that are holy and consecrated to God for any other purpose. 
Canon number six of St. Athanasius says, Say as you pray, avert my eyes, that they behold not vanity, as one that knows that the house entrusted unto you is the house of heaven, and that it is the church upon earth, whereof Jacob says, This is the house of God, this is the gate of heaven. For all the angels which come from, from before God do come first unto the church and glorify the house of God that is upon earth. So it is a work, it is a heavenly work, and the church is a heavenly place. We call the church the first floor of heaven. Um, we come and we, we, we believe that we are surrounded by the angels and the saints as we are praying in the liturgy. Um, there is an angel that descends in the, in the sanctuary as long as the sacrifice is on the altar. And the very last prayer that you hear the priest will pray at the end, he says, what, O angel of the sacrifice was flying up to the highest with this hymn, remember us before the Lord that he may forgive us our sins. What is this? Well, the angel of the sacrifice that the priest is speaking to in that moment is the angel that descended from heaven during the time of the liturgy. And now the priest is giving permission for the angel to leave. He's saying, now we're, we're done with the liturgy. You can go back to heaven again, right? So it is a sacred place. Actually, there's a story about I think it was his name was Father uh, Ibrahim the Simple. He was a saint, um, and he was a very, very simple person, very simple priest. Um, and so there was a story where uh, he, he, he forgot to pray this prayer at the end of the liturgy, and he went home. Uh, and then when he went home, uh, he, he remembered that he had forgotten to dismiss the angel, right? And so maybe like many of us, I'll say me. Um, if I if this happened to me and I went home and I realized that I had forgotten to pray this prayer, I'm saying okay, you know, I mean, uh, it's okay. You know, like like the angel knows what to do, right? But not him, you know. He he went back to the church just so he could pray this prayer, um, and so the angel would be dismissed, right? So the reason that we believe we should have rever reverence in the church is because it's a heavenly place and that is filled with angels and saints. And it is the place where we partake of the body and blood of God, right? So, so it shouldn't. We shouldn't just see it as uh, a place for activities. You know, sometimes um, people become more interested in the church as a place for activities. Maybe this happens a lot with parents. We see, oh, uh, I need to take my kids to church because it's where they have Sunday school, and it's where they play games, and it's where they meet their friends, and it's where you know there's beneficial things that happens. Okay, all those things are good. But primarily, it's a place of salvation because you can have salvation without activities. You can have salvation without Sunday school. You can have salvation with all those things. But if you just had Sunday school and you had games and you had activities and you had lessons and you had that, but you didn't have the altar, right, then there would be no salvation. So we should, shouldn't forget, like, what, is, what makes the church the church. It's not just a community of believers. It's not just a group of people who want to get together because, you know, they, this is what they believe together. It is, it is a heavenly place. And so if we believe it's a heavenly place, then we, we, should, um, we should always uh, treat it as such. Yes. Mm-hmm. So when they're when they're referring to the church here, they're speaking about the the place, okay? Um, but the reverence that we have for the people, of course, Christ said that you know whenever you serve the least of these, you are serving me. So like whenever, so he's saying, whatever you are are serving someone, 
it is like you are serving Christ himself. And so we are all made in the image of Christ. And, we, and, so, and the church is holy and the people in the church are holy. That's why at the end of the liturgy also the priest says the holy for the holies. Right? The holy, which is the sacrament, for the holies is the people. Right? Some, some people translate it as the holies for the holy ones. But in our translation we say the holy for the holies. Meaning the, the, the sacrament which is holy is going to be given to the people who are holy. Okay, and the reason we are holy is not because we are righteous and good people. The reason we are holy is because we have been sanctified by Christ um, and we have been forgiven of our sins because everyone should be repenting and everyone should be confessing their sins. And so we are made holy and in the image of God. And so we have been made worthy to receive the sacrament, not because we are inherently or intrinsically worthy. So that's why when even when we deal with each other we are called to deal with each other with respect and reverence and the fear of God and so on like as the church right as the believers of course even we are called to do that for those who are who are not the believers but but at least we are considered to be holy in the eyes of God in this way and that's why even in the scripture um, St. Paul for instance he refers to the whole church the whole body of believers as saints Right nowadays, we tend to reserve the word saint to refer to like certain individuals who are very holy and recognized by the church as being kind of a model and an example. Um, whether it be because they've performed miracles or cast out demons, or they're just very exemplary in their life, um, and we use them as a model and example for us, we call them saints. But the 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 real meaning of the word saint is is someone who is holy, right? So we are called to be holy, and we are holy made in the image of God and so uh, we also have reverence for the body um, the body of Christ okay I think that's a good stopping point for today does anyone have yes yes no, well, okay, so like I mentioned last time, and I have a website I could send you that shows, but all the canons that the Coptic Church accepts are spread out in many, many different documents across many, many different years um, in many different writings and books and councils. So there isn't like uh, a big document that says, here's the canons of the church, one, two, three, four, five, six, and so on. That doesn't exist. But what exists is this specific uh Council or this, this specific writing um, of this father, he outlined these canons. And so this is canon six of St. Athanasius in that particular writing. So there are many different canon sixes, right, of different canon sources. So, so yeah, it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's not like one big, it's not like one big document where you can say, what's the, 133rd canon of the Coptic Church. That, that it's not like that. No. I, as far as I am aware, there is none like that. In the Catholic Church, they have that. But in the, in the Coptic Church, we don't have that. And um, part of the reason we don't have it is intentional. Um, because it's it's not that it would have been that hard to compile, you know, and make a, like an anthology of all the canons. But one of the reasons that we don't do it 
is because if you were to publish a book and you call it the canons of the Coptic Church and you say here they are, right? It, it, it presents the canons as being kind of immutable and official in such a way to where there, there is not as much flexibility in them. Right now we say this council, this council, this council, this father, this father, this teaching, so on, so on. These are all canons that we accept in the church. And as I said before, the, the, the bishop has flexibility to apply them as he sees fit in his diocese. Because, again, some of the canons were written for a time where they don't really apply um, anymore. So we're not trying to bring all of the canons and make them as official because not all the canons were even using them. We're not, we're not even applying them. It's different than a book of law. Like a book of law, if you want to say, what are all the laws that apply to all the citizens of the country right now? Okay, give me a list of them. Here are all the laws. And maybe you could enumerate them, even though like that would be difficult. Um, but but it's the canons should not be seen in that light. So our church decided that it wasn't going to try to publish them in that way, um, but instead refers to the original sources of where you can find them. The Catholic Church has a different approach. They actually have a list of all the canons, um, and um, so you can refer to them. No, we know the canons that, that our church accepts. We, we know about them because we explicitly outline which ones we accept. Yeah. Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We ask, O oh God, that you grant us your peace, and you grant us to always know, O oh Lord, what you have called us for, and the commandments and the canons of the church that you want us to live by. Help us, O oh Lord, to take everything that you teach us in a spiritual way, and to benefit, O oh Lord, from it. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation but deliver us an evil one in Christ Jesus our Lord for thine is the kingdom power and the glory forever and ever amen the love of God the Father the grace of the only begotten Son our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ the communion the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all go in peace of peace of the Lord be with you all amen